Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you. We humble ourselves before your word. We open the scriptures that your scriptures might open us and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ? What does it look like to be in relationship with Jesus? Um, I would imagine that when we talk about calling forth images in our hearts and minds of Christians, true disciples, real disciples, that some of us here think of uh, callers, you know, the priests. Oh, that's what it looks like to be a true disciple, or, or deacons. Uh, at 8 o'clock, now that is true, we're supposed to, we're, we're supposed to be, we are supposed to be models, uh, but at, at 8 o'clock I said, oh, gee, I hope not. That's, that's not the best picture. What does it look like to be a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus? Perhaps you conjure up images of religious radicals uh, out in the trenches, uh, far places of the world. What's so fascinating is that today in John's gospel, we're given a picture of a true disciple, a true worshiper, an extravagant worshiper. But it's not a picture of a religious, it's not a story about a religious professional. It's just a group of normal people, a little family in Bethany. A little family in Bethany. I dare say it, you might be surprised that this family in John chapter 12, Mary of Bethany uh, in particular, looks a lot like you, a lot like you, true disciples of Jesus Christ. Take this scripture passage and follow along with me. Take your scripture passage out. You'll find it in the insert. I want to make a few observations about this story to help us better understand it and then, and then wrap it up with a few ideas for our own lives, what it looks like to be a true disciple of Jesus. It might surprise you. It's a heartwarming story, chapter 12, verse 1, in the middle of John's gospel. Here's what you need to know before we get into it contextually. John is taking us in the story of Jesus out of his public ministry where he's done these seven great signs of his power and divinity. Or actually, he's done his six great signs. His seventh is going to be the cross. He's done these six great signs. We're moving out of Jesus' public ministry into this more local, kind of smaller um, ministry of Jesus where he first with this family in Bethany and then with the disciples in the upper room and then his passion. Jesus is narrowing his focus. In chapter 11, the chapter before this, um, Jesus performs his sixth miracle. His biggest, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so... Verse 12, I mean, chapter 12 now, after that, John says this, six days, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, why would Jesus go back to Bethany? 
Why would he go back to Bethany? Um, in chapter 11, a few verses before, we read that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was like the tipping point for the religious leaders. In fact, in John's story, you say, why did Jesus have to die? Theologically, he had to die to pay for the sins of the world. But in John's story, the story goes, he died because he raised Lazarus from the dead. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. So the religious leaders are furious with him, but Jesus goes back to the scene of the crime, as it were. Why does he go back? Because they're throwing a dinner. Verse 2, there they gave a dinner for him. Um, We don't often talk, uh, I I let Dean Kidd talk about the original languages um, because that's his specialty of the Scriptures. But I will just point out that in our English translation, we're missing the word uh, that we would normally translate, therefore. So chapter 12 could read like this and give us a clue as to why Jesus is back in Bethany. It could read, therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, and there they gave a dinner for him. That word there is therefore again. Therefore, they gave a dinner for him. Here's the first thing I want you to see about true discipleship from this little moment in the life of Jesus' ministry, little family in Bethany, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. True disciples always have a past cause for their worship. True disciples live lives in response to something that God has done for them. Therefore, after Jesus performed his miracle, they throw him a dinner. It's a party to say thank you for raising their brother from the dead. True disciples live lives in response to Jesus. They're not necessarily religious professionals. They're normal folk like yourselves. There are a few of us and a lot of you, right? You don't have collars on. You're living nine to five life. You're raising a family. You're going to school. That's the picture here of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And they invite Jesus into their home in response to raising Lazarus from the dead. What is your cause to worship God? What's your past cause? What is it that you are responding to God in worship? What is it that you're responding to? In the Scriptures, um, basically uh, the whole Old Testament is Israel saying over and over and over again, um, um, thank you, God, for the Exodus event. You can go back and read about it, right? God rescues Israel from Egypt. And this is the paradigmatic moment for the life of this nation. Over and over and over, it's like, don't, don't you ever get tired of talking about the Exodus, Israel? No, we don't, because it defines us. Israel lived as a nation of worship in response to what God had done. This little family is responding to God moving in Lazarus' life. What are you responding to in your life? You say, well, I was baptized, and I've attended Eucharist ever since I was an infant, and here we are today. So I have a lot to respond to. I would say that's very good. That is true. That is right. And in many, many ways, that, pointing to the font, that was our own Exodus moment for those of us who were raised in the church. But I want to challenge you, true disciples of Jesus, normal folk, what moments of resurrection are you responding to in your life? 
God moves first, and then we worship. That's what's happening in the story. Verse 2, they, there they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of costly perfume and anointed Jesus' feet. Here's the second thing I want you to see about true discipleship. Not just that true disciples have a past cause that they're responding to in worship. They have a present connection with Jesus. I love this because all three people in this little family at Bethany, all three people are responding, serving, worshiping Jesus, but they're doing it in different ways. Do you notice that? It says, John says, uh, Martha served. You know the famous story about Mary and Martha. And elsewhere in the Gospels, Martha is in the kitchen doing things. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, and Martha gets a little bit um, ticked off that that Mary's not doing the, the, the same thing, basically, with Jesus. Jesus um, softly rebukes her and lifts Mary and says, Martha, you, you're worried about too many things. Mary is taking care of the one thing that needs to be taken care of. Here we don't have Jesus rebuking Martha. She's just serving. It's almost like Martha is just doing her thing now. Like she knows who she is, and she's happy to do what she's good at doing. This is her way of connecting with Jesus. What's Lazarus doing? Now, this is fascinating. Lazarus, he doesn't say a word in this account. He's just lying there with Jesus. I would just say, I mean, what, what more do you have to do after being raised from the dead, right? He just gets to exist. I, I heard one commentator say, listen, um, it's enough. It's enough for some of us. We're not Mary's, we're not Martha's, but we're living testimonies. We were dead people, and now we're alive. Our families were dead, and now they're living, teeming with life and the love of Jesus. Our families were broken. Our hearts were broken. Our bodies were abused. Our, 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 the illness that took over our life, and now we're alive again. Some of, of us are Lazarus. And then there's Mary, a third way of connecting with Jesus. She comes and she brings this jar of ointment. This is an extravagant, this is a highlight of the text. It's an extravagant moment of worship. Um, think about this. And elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus tells us what Mary did here will be remembered forever. Think about it this way. What Mary did here, no one else can ever do. Six days before Passover, that is to say before Jesus was to be buried, Mary anoints the body of the Messiah, preparing him for death. Let me ask you this question. Where do you think the jar of ointment came from? Worshippers, disciples live in response to God. Where do you think the jar of ointment that is Mary's worship came from? I can imagine only a few days before Lazarus' body is in the living room. And Martha says to Mary, or Mary says to Martha, go get the perfume, right? Let's anoint our brother's body for burial. Only a few days before. Now, the same jar of ointment, it's not needed for Lazarus' body. It's being used for Jesus' body. Perhaps a, a conjecture Commentators wonder, they don't know where, why the family had this jar of oil. It was, uh, as we see from the text, it was worth a year's wages. Very, very expensive. 
Mary brings out this jar. It's almost like they planned it, right? Okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to invite Jesus to a thank you meal because he raised Lazarus from the dead. Mary, you're going to bring the ointment out. Martha, you're going to serve. Lazarus, just lay there and eat, right? I love this comment. Look at verse 3, this little, this little narrator comment that St. John gives us. He just adds, the house, do you see that? The house was what? Filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, I suppose it would be not that important, except that a few days ago, as the King James Version would say, their brother, Lazarus, stinketh. Remember, he was in the tomb, right? Lord, don't, Jesus tells the, the ladies to open the tomb. No, we don't want to open the tomb. He stinketh. Now, a different smell fills their nostrils in this living room. The smell of worship. How do you connect with Jesus right now? Not when was your baptismal date, not how many Eucharists have you attended. How do you connect with Jesus now? I don't ask you that in a way to say, I hope you have your answer. What's your answer? Write it down. No, I'm saying, how do you let Jesus love you? That's what I'm asking. How do you let Jesus love you? True disciples have a past cause and a present connection. And here's the third thing. Verse 4, it's a challenge. True disciples will always be challenged. True worship of the living God will always be challenged by the world. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Oh my gosh, he sounds so righteous, doesn't he? I mean, does it give you the, the chills when you think about Judas's role in the story, and yet he's the one talking about the poor? Jesus goes on to say, of course, leave her alone, Judas, not because the poor aren't important, but because I'm only going, the Lord of heaven and earth, I'm only going to be here with you a few more days like this. Friends, the world will never see Jesus the way true disciples see Jesus. It's a fact. Judas, in the room there, in the room with the perfume filling his nostrils, cannot grasp why this would make sense. Do you see that? A bunch of people looking at the same story, and Judas is thinking, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. This is a waste. Marva Don, years ago, wrote a book, one of the books that has formed my view of worship perhaps more than anyone else. It was, it was my downfall. I'm sure that it got me into the Episcopal Church. <laughs> and the name of her book, it's all about Christian worship. It's, it's, it's this, a royal waste of time. That is Christian worship. It's a waste of time. In the world's eyes, what we do in our worship of responding to Jesus will always be a waste. It's not practical. It doesn't make sense. We're throwing our money away. We're throwing our kids' lives away. I uh, want you to know that this is the verse that has been often misinterpreted throughout Christian history, and it gets used um, in situations like, why do Christians have big, beautiful cathedrals? 
Why, when the poor are outside? Friends, that is not the point of this passage. It's a, a, a theological discussion for another time, but Jesus says, leave her alone. There's something extravagant about Christian worship because there's something extravagant about the Christian God who has poured himself out for us just like this jar of perfume was poured out upon his feet. Christian worship will always be challenged. Brother or sister in Christ, let me tell you today that even if you're the only one in your neighborhood who goes to church or cares about God, if you're the only one who spends time and money on the things of the Lord, who reads books that no one else is reading, who listens to music that no one else is listening to, and on and on and on, take heart. It will always seem like a waste to those who don't love Jesus. That's, that's part of the deal. But you're in the right place, true disciple. You're not a religious professional. You're not a religious radical. You're just a Mary, a Martha, or a Lazarus whose life has been touched by resurrected Jesus Christ, and you want to respond to him. That's what it means to be a true disciple. I just have to say this. Notice uh, in closing that in this little story, zoom way out and think about it for a second. We have a group of people in a home around a meal with Jesus present. Serving is happening, right? Worship is happening. It even smells like worship. Can you smell the incense from a minute ago? This image of Jesus being present with his people in a little, around a meal and worship is happening is a theme over and over and over. Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years and here we are today doing the same thing. We're pouring out our worship, recounting the deeds that God has done in our lives and he's present with us and we're breaking bread and some of us who were dead, are here and alive again. Christian, I am so happy to be wasting time with you and Jesus today. Amen.